Welcome to the Win the 16 podcast presented by Pygon One Consulting. This is your go-to podcast on optimizing your day. The Win the 16 podcast features discussions on leadership and coaching, personal and professional development, as well as discussions on the modern work culture and engaging employees in hybrid and remote work environments. Your hosts are Dave Pygon, president of Pygon One Consulting, and his brother, Dr. Bud Pygon, anesthesiologist at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Win the 16 podcast. As always, thank you to Carrie and the production team for all the behind the scenes work. Uh, we appreciate all that you do. Today, we have a fantastic guest. I'm excited to introduce them. Uh, his name is Dr. Frank Cespedes. He is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. Um, one of the benefits uh, of having a podcast is we get contacted many times by some amazing people. And a couple months back, we got contacted that we should talk to Frank. And why that's so unique and special, obviously he's a Harvard guy and we all have respect for Harvard. But Frank has more than just being at Harvard as a senior lecturer. He ran businesses. He served on many boards. And as you all know, I wrote my first book this year, Win the 16. Uh, Frank's written six books. So he's going to be able to give us a little bit of his experiences in writing. So I can't wait to learn from Frank at his latest book, Sales Management That Works. We're definitely going to talk about it because uh, I need to learn more about it. So my good new friend from the East Coast, Frank. Welcome to the podcast. Win the 16, my friend. Dave, thank you very, very much for hosting me. It is truly a pleasure to be here. Oh, no. I've got a funny story to kick this off. Uh, I didn't even tell you this during our pregame to get ready for the podcast. So uh, I was networking last week, and I was sitting next to a University of Chicago gentleman. MBA, went to undergrad there. He was just, we were talking about a litany of different topics. The podcast came up and I, I don't know. He said, who's, who are you having on these days? Cause he, he's a listener. And I said, oh, I'm having my uh, friend from Harvard talk. He goes, Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're having a Harvard guy on the podcast in the back of your book. You got another Harvard guy validating the book. What about a little love for us here in Chicago at the university of Chicago? So there's a little competition there, Frank. Well, Dave, my advice, you, you know what to say. You, you never diss a friend or potential client and tell them how much you respect the second best business school in America. <laughs> Amen. I love that. Good call, Frank. Good call. I just thought you'd find that uh, fun. Okay. So, Frank, first of all, before I start asking you questions, because I've got a ton for you today, is there anything in, in your background that I didn't share that you think it would be pertinent for our listeners today about you that you would like to share, whatever that might be. I, I don't think my background is particularly exotic. You know, I um, uh, I uh, got my degrees, um, was sort of your standard issue professor uh, for a decade at Harvard's Business School. Then I left with some others. We started a business. I ran that for 10 years and we got lucky. Uh, you know, uh, when need be, I can spin this a different way. <laughs> but the truth is, it was dumb luck. We sold at the right time. 
Harvard then called me back up and said, how'd you like to be a professor again? And I assure you, Dave, teaching at a decent school after you've made some real money is a good life. Don't don't feel sorry for me. <laughs> I love that. By the way, um, yeah, what about this uh, doctrine of philosophy at Cornell that you said a little bit of education that you've got? Anything philosophically you'd like to share with us? No, uh, it was, uh, you know, your standard uh, doctoral training. Uh, doctoral training in America is not aimed at the wider world. It's aimed to, uh, you know, get you a jump start as a professor. Uh, and all I can say about Cornell is I enjoyed every minute of it. I thought it was a great place to go to school. Yeah. Frank, I really respect how humble you are. Uh, yeah, that, not only having a doctrine, but Cornell's special, as we know. I'm going to dive into the book right away. And since I'm a first time author, I learned a tremendous amount about myself, how to write, and I'm still in that learning environment. I'd love to know, since you have written six books, the last one, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was a year ago, um, and that was sales management that works. Why did you write another book? And why this? Now, it's a fair it's a fair question, especially about the topic of that latest book. Um, here, your listeners might find this uh, interesting. If you go to Amazon and uh, go to the book section and in the keywords you put in sales, out will come over 80,000 SKUs, over 80,000 Scott's uh, stock keeping units. Um, as far as I can tell, the only management topic that gets more skews than sales is, quote, leadership. It gets about 90,000, but sales is a close second. So I think it's a fair question. You know, you know the old saying, uh, no single drop of rain ever feels responsible for the flood. So, you know, why did I contribute to this uh, monsoon? And I had two reasons in particular. One is fundamentally a professional intellectual reason. Sales is by far the most context specific activity in business. And what I'm getting at is that selling software is different than selling durable goods, is different than selling professional services, etc. Selling in North America is different than selling in Latin America or Asia, or the Middle East, very context specific. But for some reason, it is that topic in business where people feel most comfortable making huge generalizations that are unsupported by no data whatsoever beyond what in academia we would call N equals one. In other words, when I sold for Oracle, here's what worked for me, I'm sure it'll work for you that kind of thing. So after almost 30 years of doing what I think is pretty good research in this area, uh, I wanted to write a book that says this is what research does and does not tell you about this core activity in business. And my second reason is I think it's a particularly good time for a book like that. There is no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that digital online technologies are affecting buying and selling. But again, what I read that people say about that 
is just contradicts the data I'm familiar with. And I think misunderstands the managerial and for that matter, the personal implications of what technology means for buying and selling. So those are my motivations uh, with this book, Dave. Writing a book's a lot of work, as we both know. When you're going through that journey, Frank, what are your tricks of the trade to move through the process as you're writing it to get you through it? Because it is a tremendous amount of time and effort. And we have a lot of first-time authors that listen to the program and want people who want to write a book. What would you tell them? Well, I mean, I, I would say a few things. Um, you know, that old saying, uh, the uh, test of a vocation is love of its drudgery, all right? Um, I love the drudgery around writing books. It's one of the reasons I became a professoroni in the first place. I get a real, you know, real satisfaction out of seeing those two to three pages each day uh, accumulate. So that's number one. If you If you don't enjoy the process, don't do it. Two, don't do it because you think a book is going to make you rich, all right? Look at the data around that. Uh, it's it's um, right. very, very rare that a book uh, drives through the clutter. I'm very, very pleased with what's happened, you know, with my books. But, you know, trust me, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not reasonably wealthy because of uh, book royalties. That's, that's not uh, what's driving it. And the third, and here I'm going to run the risk of uh, alienating some people, but, you know, I'm at a stage in my career where I can say these things. Go for it. There's a reason why certain industries get beat up, and the publishing industry is a good exhibit A for that. They are never going to win awards for effective marketing. So the single most common thing I see with authors is they do write the book. They may write a good book, and then they're so disappointed when the marketing behind that book from whatever publisher they're working with is in their view. I think you should know that going in. And at the end of the day, if you're really concerned, not only with sales, but with getting your message out, you have to do that. I mean, that's why I'm on this podcast with Dave Pygon. So those would be the three things I would point out. Uh, but um, there's there's lots and lots of books out there. You 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 do it because ultimately you enjoy doing it and think you have something to say. Completely agree. I completely. I love what I've said this before on the podcast. I'll say it again. I love what Mark Twain said too about the the writing of it, and that is write what you know. Write what you know. And I always share that with people who talk to me about writing a book. And I'm not at your level. You've written six. I'm only at one. But write what you know. It makes it it makes the process funner. I don't want to say easier because nothing's easy about writing a book, but it's definitely more enjoyable. And that knowledge that you have going in about that topic is is was critical, at least during my journey. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. No, I I, I agree, but uh, you know, it's what you know and can back up, not just, uh, you know, my memoir of X, Y, and Z, oh. <laughs> at least with business books. At the end of the day, uh, you know, you need some evidence, not just assertion. 
Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's get back to the book, Sales Management That Works, that you wrote. And I want to know this. You had mentioned early on in this that some of the sales trainings, communication with people is all sales are the same. In the book, is there a couple points that you could share before the audience buys this that really jumps out that you think would be important we all learn today from yeah. your perspective? I'd love yeah, to hear. I, I, again, as always, uh, and I think this is true in business and in life, but it's especially true in sales, you want to get back to people, all right? That's, that's the alpha and omega. And there are two things that I think folks would find interesting in the data that's, that's in the book, and it's about hiring and training. Um, when you're hiring in sales, you're running into challenges that simply do not exist to the same extent in any other business function. For example, if you want to hire someone in uh, finance or accounting, uh, you can go to a school, Chicago, anywhere else, and you can find people that majored in those subjects. Uh, engineering. Right. You, you need to hire an engineer. You go to an engineering school and it's a little bit like walking into a food court. What are you interested in? Civil engineering, electrical engineering. Same is true with programmers, by the way. But last time I looked, which was when I started writing this book about four years ago. Of the more than 4000 colleges and universities in America, less than 300 even offered a sales course, let alone a sales program. So this is an area of business where the vast majority of people start out knowing very little, in fact, almost nothing about what they're going to get paid for, right? Uh, so you got to grow your own uh, when it comes to uh, newbies in the area. And that leads to what I want to say about training. The, uh, the Companies, especially U.S. companies, spend on sales training is enormous. It's a huge figure. It is, they spend 20% more per capita per person on sales training than on any other function in the company. But the return on that investment is notoriously disappointing. And there are systemic reasons why it's disappointing. You know, I, I'll point to, you know, one or two, and then we can go wherever you want with this, Dave. Salespeople, like most adults, are not studying for the final exam in my course or their training seminar. Adults pay attention to information when and where they need it, not months or weeks earlier or later in a training seminar. And, you know, th that, that's, that's an important thing to understand. What people call just-in-time learning is very important here. Salespeople pay attention to information on their way to making a call or during the actual sales conversation. And this, by the way, is an area where technology can and should be your friend. There are now many, many relatively low-cost technologies, the phone, the iPad, et cetera, where you can get that information to people when they need it. 
The other thing I'd point out about training, and again, this is true for adult training in particular, but especially in sales, the jargon for this is called modeling behavior. Salespeople learn the most from their peers. They learn the most from watching the best of their peers in action. You know, the way you dealt with that price objection, that's clever. I hadn't thought of that. The way you frame the value proposition, I'm going to use that. And again, this is an area where technology can help you disseminate best practice. So th those would be the areas I'd point to uh, in you know, response to your excellent question. Okay, Frank. <clears throat> this, maybe this is your expertise or it's not. So if it's not, punt. Feel free to we can move on. How my experience over the years, I like on one, I don't do sales training. I refer that when people ask me about that, I ref, I give that to the experts of the world. Um, and I've got reasons why. We could talk off record on why I do that. It isn't change agility in our friend Carol Dweck in Stanford on the West Coast growth mindset part of the failure in taking these trainings and our salespeople actually learning from them and then implementing that, or am I wrong? Well, I mean, I, I, I got to break your question into two parts. Thank you. Um, because um, if one part of the question is, therefore, should we train people and salespeople in particular, you know, <laughs> my, my answer there is, you know, what's the alternative, right? I mean, <laughs> if the alternative is to have people that can't do the job, that's a pretty poor uh, alternative. And I always think back to um, something uh, an executive said to me years and years ago when I was new um, uh, at Harvard, you know, we, we write case studies, uh, which I think is good. It forces you to get in the field and actually learn. And I always remember uh, what one executive said to me. He said, Frank, you watch what you're going to see in your career. You're going to find that many, many companies maintain their equipment better than they do their people. So I don't think the issue is do we not train? If you don't spend money there, you'll ultimately get what you're not paying for. All right. I do think the issue, though, is how we do the training. And here, agility to use the phrase you uh, introduced, is important, but I think we have to bring abstractions like that down to earth, all right? I mean, who's, who's going to be against agility, all right? Um, and in the area of sales, much of the training is tied to a specific methodology. Now, methodologies are important. It is hard to scale an organization if your customer-facing people are doing all different things. But any methodology has its limits. And the reality in most sales occupations, and by most I mean like 90%, the reality is during the course of a week, sometimes a day, the salesperson runs into very different buyers with very, very different buying criteria. The research for that is that they've got to be good at adaptive selling knowing what parts of what they've been trained on are relevant here, not there. That's agility, and that is important. But you can also help develop that by, again, having them watch the best of their peers, deal with this and other mechanisms. 
But I don't think the fact that companies don't get a good ROI on a core people development function is a reason for saying the hell with it. That's the, you know, that's a good way to run your business into the ground. Yeah, well, absolutely. Right, because it goes back to that. And we overuse this a little bit term now, I think, in the world, but but it's just so true. Do you want to be the expert of yesterday or the expert of tomorrow? And that's that whole growth mindset. And by the way, once once you catch up and finish listening to all the episodes, Frank, you'll hear my brother and I, we are obsessed with Carol Dweck and growth mindset, but we just believe in it. And I think so many times the sales teams, part of this training that you're talking about, some of them see it as very similar to what they're doing. Or secondly, they've had a great, they've, they've had a lot of success and they kind of lean on it. And that same success in selling people is the exact reason they're not selling the next client because they're resting on what used to work or at least work frequently with them. And no, I, think I, I, yeah, I think that's true. But the way I would think about that, you know, if, if you're in business, it's both supply and demand. And, and what I mean by that is why do salespeople or anybody uh, resist um, uh, training? Because for whatever reason, they don't see value there. The time I spent doing that, I could have been spending making two or three more calls or performing a service activity. So on the supply side, you got to make sure that it's relevant and useful. Demand side, I agree with you. You know, uh, but here I think there are levers that go beyond training that smart companies and smart executives use. Compensation, how we structure incentives. The natural human tendency is to rest on your laurels. And that's just built in. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I love change, right? That just, that just doesn't happen. But there are other mechanisms in performance management that one can use and I think you got to use them. I think there are what I discovered running a business. There are significant limits to preaching. You know, I mean, it, you can only get just so far telling somebody get better. Wow. I hadn't thought about that. Get better. Yeah. I almost find that it's almost condescending when the whole get better comes out with to people. I, I'm going to jump off on a different path for a second because you said something and we'll jump back on Uh transactional leadership versus transformational leadership. I communicate with you know, my executives, leaders I'm talking to. Here's what I see they lean on too much, and I'd love to know your perspective if you agree, disagree, or unsure. I believe they lean on the comp plans to drive change when a comp plan, if you really look at transformational leadership and transactional that's transactional leadership. You do this, I'll give you that. It's very transactional, the comp plans that come out. And I know a lot of times the goal is, hey, we're going to get this comp plan because we're going to try to change behaviors. But I think there's a fine line between doing that and what you're actually going to get. And I don't believe that's necessarily transformational leadership. That's transaction. Frank, you're my sales guy. You do this, I'll give you that. And you would say, Frank? I, I agree with some of what you're saying. I certainly agree that there are a number, a, a, a fair amount of um, 
managers that, um, you know, in your term, see it as purely transactional. You know, you, you, the phrases surrounding sales are, uh, you know, very uh, indicative of this. You know, we talk about a coin-operated salespeople. I mean, think about that. Talking about human beings as though they're vending machines, right? I mean, that, that, that's clearly stupid and limiting. That said, the way I think about compensation and incentives is that they are a necessary but not sufficient cause of getting the behavior you want. Now, I have colleagues who will tell you that compensation is not only overrated as a motivational device, but uh, maybe irrelevant, that it's all about, quote, intrinsic rewards. All I can say is that's not the planet I have lived on for 50 plus years. I think the way people get paid matters and you got to pay attention to it, but it's a necessary but not sufficient cause. Then when it comes to the transformational part, I try to avoid phrases like that. Uh, If I'm blunt, Dave, I think it's overused in the current environment. And I'll give you my definition of leader and leadership. My definition of leader and leadership is not, you know, somebody who's charismatic, separated at birth from Steve Jobs or something like that. My definition of a leader is someone who can materially affect the allocation of resources in an organization. And that's not just the 10 or 12 people who happen to be sitting in the best offices. That's a lot of other people who in turn manage other people. And when you look at companies and organizations that truly are agile, that are able to do things today that also help them tomorrow, it's not because we had a half dozen geniuses at the top. It's because we somehow disseminated that in all those other areas that I'm calling leaders. Uh, uh, Great point. Frank, then in your opinion, I want to, I'm going to share something after you, but I want you to go to first. Why does, so here in Chicago, we're, I'm a Chicago White Sox fan. The leadership is terrible. It just is. It's just very bad. Why do so many leaders fail then? Why do so many leaders with all the books, the education, um, why do they fail? Well, I'm going to, and I don't mean this as a plug, but I think uh, I think it's very relevant to your uh, your question. By the way, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. We're in last place, all right? So we can share the misery, Pygon. Thank um, you, my friend. Thank you. But um, the, the, it's interesting what's happened in a lot of um, uh, corporations, the, the, the global 1,200. Uh, by that is meant the uh, 1,200 biggest companies in the world. Very good study, not done by me, but by a colleague of mine. If you look at those 1,200 companies, on average, in the last 20 years, the number of people reporting to the CEO has doubled, twice as many. But then if you step back and ask yourself, who are these people? What were they doing before they became leaders, in that sense, senior executives, The reality is that very, very few of them were actually general managers in the way at least we use that phrase at Harvard Business School. By general manager, 
we mean somebody running a line of business or somebody with profit and loss responsibility, et cetera. The majority of those additions to the C-suite are specialists, all right? The CIO, the uh, CMO, the head of data science or whatever. The point being that the leadership in these firms has become much more specialized. Now, why is that? You know, again, it's not like companies wake up and say, great idea, let's become bureaucratic and siloed. And that's not the cause. The business world is more complex. We are living through a data revolution. Staying in touch with best practice if you're running supply chain or marketing or finance or whatever is a more data intensive activity. But the reality, ironically, is that the leadership suite in many big companies looks more and more like a faculty meeting, you know, where where people have their specialties. That's what I would point to. Uh, I think that's the, a major cause. And by the way, just to, uh, uh, you know, put a, a dot on this, fewer people than ever before have made it to the top of big companies with a background in customer-facing activities like marketing, sales, service. That's a big deal because whatever else you're supposed to do as a senior executive, you're supposed to put together a market-relevant strategy. Tough to do that if you've never had customer contact for the previous 25 years of your career. Yeah, thank you for sharing that data. I didn't know that. Got into a conversation the other day uh, on this a little bit, and I started talking about the Peter Principle, and I want to know what you think on this. We, these people, for the people who listen and don't know the Peter Principle, that is, I'm a sales rep, I do really good, I get promoted because I'm good at that job. I go to the next job, I get promoted to that because I do a good job. And I keep getting promoted doing a good job until I get to the point where I'm not really qualified to do this next job or the job I'm doing. And I don't want to say fail, but you're really not doing well. My experience over the years is at times in the organizations I've been to, as well as some of my friends' organizations that I've been into, some of these people get promoted. Um, and let's go back to our baseball, Boston Red Sox and Chicago White Sox. Just because you were a good baseball player does not mean you're going to be a good executive or manager or coach of that team. And I believe that's part of the process that we, our leaders or managers, whatever you want to call them, at what level, are failing. And you would say? Oh, I, I basically agree. I, I think the Peter Principle, you know, getting promoted to the level of your incompetence uh, is alive and well. I always remember <laughs> the business I ran. We did a lot of business with different financial institutions. And I always remember the senior executive at um, one of the big investment banks, she said to me, Frank, in this business, everybody is smart until they're not, all right? And boy, that you just look at the uh, uh, financial markets. I think it's important, though, to understand what's at the heart of the Peter Principle, and I think you touched on it. One of the classic transitions in any career that's going somewhere is the transition from being the individual contributor to a leader. Now, by definition, a leader is someone who gets things done through others. 
That transition, we know this from 60 years of research about careers, that transition is difficult for the majority of people, <clears throat> either because A, they're not interested in that, you know, those are responsibilities, or B, they do, you know, what you're pointing to with the baseball analogy. Well, the guy hit 300. I am sure he can manage people, you know, that, that category mistake. And it's, you know, again, if you get back to sales, what's so interesting about sales, that challenge is there in almost its purest form. Why do so many people go into sales and stay there? Because if you make your numbers, they leave you alone. They value that autonomy. But once you become a manager, it's a completely different game. And the single most common complaint that I have heard about sales leaders throughout my career, and you know, your, your audience can't see me, but once upon a time, I looked like Jimi Hendrix, you know, I had a full head of hair. You look the great. single most common complaint is, you know, we promoted Charlie or Charlotte to be our sales leader. They were our best salesperson. They continue to be our best salesperson, but they can't manage their way out of a paper bag, right? So in effect, you know, the, the, the growth constraint is how far their arms can reach. So I think that's what's at stake, but it's not peculiar to sales. And it's not simply because the Peter principle is blind. It is basically tapping into a dynamic that is core to what happens in careers. And it remains a challenge and will be a challenge for every generation. Thanks, Frank. Uh... I ask routinely to my clients, managers, directors, this question, and I'll be curious if you're surprised by the answer. I'll ask them if they're leading salespeople, if you only could talk to one of your sales people today, this week, this month, or spend time with them, who would it be? Would yeah. it be your top performers, your middle, and your bottom? Yeah. And I was taught this years ago of what I do and what I recommend from Jim Thomas. I worked under him at Alcon moons ago. Uh, he's an Ohio State Buckeye guy, by the way. And what do you think most people say to me when I ask them the question? Majority of them, of those three buckets, who does that leader, would they spend time with if they had a choice? The top, the medium, or the bottom? My hunch is that uh, most say the bottom. Bingo. Yep. Yeah. And I, I always I, tell them, I, no, don't, I, I wouldn't. That's not me. Well, I can tell you what I would say, what I think the data suggests, and, and then you let oh, me I know. Love this. If you look at the bottom in most sales organizations, the reality is the problem there was essentially a hiring problem. It's a bad fit. You know, it's, this is not a condemnation of that person, uh, but they're, whatever they're good at is not what the sales task demands. And it's, you know, let's just sort of get back to basics and reality. At the end of the day, it is hard to develop and coach somebody who's a bad fit for the job in the first place, right? Then if you look at the top, let's say the top quintile, top 20%, those are clearly people that are performing the real issue there is they have to continue to be motivated so that they don't become what you referred to earlier, you know, resting on their um, installed base. 
What I think the data demonstrates pretty conclusively is that small incremental improvements to that majority in the middle of the bell curve, in the aggregate, those improvements have a bigger impact on the bottom line than, you know, uh, sort of spending your time with someone who's a bad fit or someone who's already producing. So that that's the way I uh, think about it. Yeah, thanks, Frank. I just thought you'd find, well, you were right on target. They, they tend, and part of that, I think, Frank, there's an emotional component to it, I believe, that they're irritated, maybe not happy, upset because the person's not performing. It's bringing the team's number down. There's a little bit of an ego. Uh, I hired this person. We're going to make it happen. Uh, I'll get him to do it my way. And they look at their 80%. If we got them to 100, how much impact? When I would always, when after I listen to them, I always throw it back to them and say, but you know what? A much faster traction. I'm not so sure what you're talking about can be done. And I'm not saying give up. But what I am saying is those top performers, if they're engaged, and they're in a growth mindset still, and they're willing to improve, which a lot of them are, they're willing to take the coaching and run with it. And their growth of these small increments will come from them far quicker than anybody else. No, I, I, I'd add just one more reason, though, for why, um, sure. you know, why you see the gravitation toward the bottom. I agree with you. You know, one reason is what you might call, you know, no child left behind. Yeah. Uh, the other... Um, uh, that that emotional attachment, but in sales, you know, sales is typically held to fairly short-term metrics. What a lot of managers do, they realize that if I don't work with Charlie, and I fire Charlie, I have to find the next Charlie and bring that person up to speed. So they stick with the devil they know. I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake for two reasons. Those incremental decisions add up. Second, they send a signal to everybody else about performance. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you're exactly right about the reasons for that. But I would just add one more that have to do with metrics. And, you know, this may pay off a year from now, but I got to I got to generate some revenue three months from now, next quarter. Yes, absolutely. Frank, from a time standpoint, we got two more questions left. You ready? Mm -hmm. Okay. I asked this to all my authors. What is your favorite chapter in your latest book, Sales Management That Works? Your favorite chapter? Hiring. Start with hiring. Uh, especially... Uh, in the area that we're looking at, the vast majority of companies have a long, long way to go. They can improve their hiring practices tremendously. There's an over-reliance on interview and gut feel, and the data there is as close to definitive as anything you'll ever hear from a management professor. I mean, the correlation between the... Um, the evaluations people get in their interviews and their actual subsequent on-the-job performance is less than flipping a coin. 
All right. So that's that would be uh, my answer to your question. Start with people and start at the start of the process. Who we hire, how and why. Oh, great. Thanks, Frank. Um, last question. It's in the book, too. And it's interesting this and it's about C-suite and the C-suite leaders in your that you discuss in the book. And you discuss the gap that many organizations, firms between the leadership team and then the act activities of the customer facing colleagues. And why don't you share with everybody, if you can briefly, what's driving that and what's the issue there? Because we have a lot of C-suite people listening and actually I have two clients right now that are trying to get closer. I think they're gonna find this very interesting, your answer. But why is that an issue? What's driving it? Well, I mean, again, like any big issue, there's really just one reason, right? I mean, it, it's it, it's almost always a perfect storm. I already talked about some. It's a data revolution. We have more specialists, fewer people um, with uh, with a background, in particular, with customers, right? That's that's number one. Um, Number two, I think, is uh, what happens, again, in people's careers. I mean, again, I remember uh, years ago, again, writing a case, an executive said to me something that it took me a while to understand the wisdom of what he was getting at. He said, um, marketing and sales in most companies is managed as it should have been managed five to 10 years in the past in that industry. Why? Because the people making the really important decisions, the senior executives, that's the last time they were out in the field on a regular basis. So they're making decisions often based on an obsolete vision of uh, what is actually going on in the market. And in any business, value is created or destroyed in the market. It is not created <laughs> in strategic uh, planning meetings. And then the third thing, and I think we're we're living through an inflationary period of this fallacy, there are many executives who really believe that they can manage the business through data, end of story, right? Uh, and that's 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 not true. Data is about what's already happened. Business decisions are about the future. Data is mute. Data has to be interpreted. And, you know, maybe ChatGPT can do this, but I doubt it. At the end of the day, it's people that have to take data and say, so what, now what? So I do think there are a number of people that think the spreadsheet is the answer. Um, unfortunately, and by the way, as somebody who managed a business for 11 years, I do mean, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, people are more complex than that. It's too easy to do it that way. I think that's laziness, intellectual laziness, and physical work laziness, Frank, just doing it because life's not that easy and neither is work. Um, Frank Cespedes, thank you for the time today. You were nothing less than outstanding to me and to the audience and the listeners. Uh, any last parting words for your from your perspective before I close it out for the both of us? Well, uh, first of all, I want to thank you. Um, I don't know. For my last parting words, it's relevant to what uh, you were just saying. 
I, I say this to executives, you know, uh, you know, the author, John le Carre, you know, the spy novels, uh, the spy who came in from the cold and, and so forth. In one of his books, a character says something I think every executive should have tattooed to a prominent body part. And what that person says is a desk is a dangerous place from which to watch the world. I think that's true. A desk is a dangerous place from which to watch the world. And to your point earlier, a lot of executives do that and um, uh, you pay for it. That's a great way to close it. Frank, thank you so much. Everyone out there, if you're looking for a good book, my friend Frank Cespedes has a really good one for us. Sales Management That Works. Sales Management That Works. Amazon, I'm sure, Frank, and everywhere else we can get it at this point. All the usual suspects. Amazon, yeah. all those places. Yep. So Sales Management That Works from by Frank Cespedes. Take a read to all our friends out there. As always, everybody, thank you for listening to Win the 16 podcast. If you'd like to reach out, you have comments about today, you have comments, questions, whatever that might be, please reach out to pygon1.com. That's P-Y-G-O-N-O-N-E.com. We'd love to hear from you. And again, everybody, until next time, win the 16. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Win the 16 podcast presented by Pygon One. Please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Episodes will be released every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. Central Time. Thank you and go win the 16.